as we have discussed before on the podcast, nothing was bigger in the 1920s than the moon! People loved the moon back then. A lot of songs written about the moon. We had Moon Month a while back. We had like three songs in a row all about the moon. This song should have been in that month because this is Neath the South Sea Moon as performed by Bailey's Lucky Seven. What else did you have to write about back then? You got horses, you got crops, child labor, and the moon. So you write about the moon. You know, I've noticed something interesting about these 1922 songs. So when I started this podcast, my understanding was that music enters the public domain 90 years after publication date, which I believe is true in the U.S., but you may remember that I had an episode yanked from the airwaves in Japan. I got Japan canceled over There's Life in the Old Girl Yet by Maisie Gay. Uh, apparently a very diligent staffer at Warner Music Japan found my episode featuring There's Life in the Old Girl Yet and diligently yanked it from the airwaves because that song is only 98 years old. Which is I, such a shame. They love my takes on internal democratic politics in Japan. That was the one about everyone hates the educated left. You can't get that in Japan. Such a tragedy. Anyway, since then, I have been sure to only use music that is 100 years old. So I'm stuck in 1922 now. And what I've learned is that <laughs> they hadn't really figured out singing yet in 1922. A lot of the songs I'm coming across are instrumentals. Very few songs with a vocalist because it was so rudimentary. They are so figuring out, like, oh, you can, you can sing! They're just having that idea at this moment. You can sing! It doesn't have to be seven guys with coronets playing into a microphone made from an empty can of beans. Interesting history. Hello! You're listening to the I Might Be Wrong podcast, hopefully on purpose, but I don't really care either way. This is the thing where I read an article that can be found on my Substack, which is called I Might Be Wrong. That's I Might Be Wrong.substack.com. That's where you find all my stuff, this article, and many, many articles. Not every article that gets written gets recorded. So please, I encourage you to go there and check it out. It is, at this moment, totally free. Though you can also pay me if you, I don't know, maybe you're just really bad with money or you want to impress somebody. I don't, I don't know. You can pay me. That's an option, but it is also free. Today's episode is called Why Gutfeld is the Highest-Rated Political Comedy Show on Cable. I wanted to write this one because I look at TV ratings, <laughs> because I used to work in TV. So I got in the habit of looking at ratings. I still do it. They're online, and something kind of interesting is going on. There's a development that obviously most people aren't going to be aware of because they don't follow this crap, and why would they? But I think it's kind of interesting. I think it tells us a little something about TV and a little something about the country. So the episode is called Why Gutfeld, exclamation point, because that's how they spell it, is the highest rated political comedy show on cable. Subheading, it's not because it's good. So let's start with the raw numbers. Here are the average total viewers for several cable political comedy shows over the past six months. And I did past six months because that's as far as I felt like going back and compiling these numbers. But six months takes us almost to the beginning of Gutfeld. Gutfeld came on Fox in April of last year. So 
Gutfeld, the political comedy show that is on Fox News, their average total viewers are about 1.8 million viewers. That makes them the highest rated political comedy show on cable. Second place is Bill Maher. He's at about 900,000. Last week tonight with John Oliver, my old gig, and Full Frontal with Sam B are tied at about 500,000. Then you get The Daily Show. They're just below 400,000. Uh, did you know there's a show called The God's Honest Truth with Leonard Charlemagne McKelvey on Comedy Central? Well, there is, but you're probably not one of the fewer than 200,000 people watching it. And then Dazus and Marrow, are they a political comedy show? They're on the line. I didn't know. I decided to include them there at about uh, 70,000. So the upshot is that Gutfeld, this new Fox News comedy show starring Greg Gutfeld of The Five, that launched last year. It is the highest rated political comedy show on cable. And by a lot. Twice as many viewers as the second place show. Three times as many as any other show. Four times as many as The Daily Show, which is, of course, the seminal show of this genre. And as I'll explain a little later, in a lot of ways, the gap is even more extreme than it seems. Gutfeld, exclamation point, because that's how they spell it, is a legitimate force in the world of late-night political comedy. And this is stunning to me. Now, I am a long-time late-night comedy superfan. I watched Letterman, Conan, and The Daily Show pretty much every night for 20 years. You can even see how those lined up. I would watch The Daily Show at 11, Letterman at 11.35. When Colbert came around, I would squeeze in the first segment there. Letterman at 11.35, then go over to Conan at 12.35. I did that for basically 20 years. Then, as you probably know, I ended up writing for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver from 2014 to 2020. Now, I am out of the genre, and in a development that I did not see coming at all, I don't watch any of the late-night shows. I don't know if I have changed. I don't know if they have changed. I'm not really sure. I think it might be kind of like how... I used to work at Wendy's, and then I quit Wendy's, and then I didn't eat a hamburger for like a year. At any rate, my sudden detachment from the genre has only increased my fascination with it. I don't watch late night anymore, but I do still look at the numbers because I find them interesting. And this is very interesting. The ascendance of a conservative political comedy show is, to my mind, just about the most interesting thing that could have happened to the genre for decades, decades, people wondered why there wasn't a conservative daily show. And Fox News actually attempted this back in 2007. Does anyone remember the half-hour news hour? Nobody remembers the half-hour news hour. But it was a show that was on Fox News in 2007, and it totally flopped. I have been asked many times why there is no conservative daily show. I always gave an answer that was in the area of, oh, it has something to do with the fact that there aren't many conservative comedians, which is true, and that the conservative worldview isn't compatible with the subversive nature of comedy. That's always what I said. Gutfeld has shoved those words pretty far up my ass. So I have been very curious about what Gutfeld is doing, whether it is any good, and what it could possibly tell us about the state of entertainment and politics. Now let's go back to the numbers. Just how big of a phenomenon is Gutfeld? Because those were some pretty impressive numbers I hear at the top. Well, to take 
some of the shine off the penny. Total viewers is only one number that measures a show's success. Another important data point is the show's number, as they say, in the demographic, which means younger viewers. Now, for advertising reasons, networks <laughs> honestly only give a shit about, not only, but mostly give a shit about young people. Old people have already bought everything that they are going to ever buy, except for perhaps a reverse mortgage and a funeral plot. So as far as Madison Avenue is concerned, old people can go straight to hell. And soon, because they're old. At any rate, networks often prefer the quote-unquote demo number, and so do I, by the way, because <laughs> the demo, because you don't have time to say demographic. We're too busy to say demographic. We call it the demo. The demo is 18 to 49-year-olds, which I, as a 41-year-old, love because it lumps me together <laughs> with actual, like, real-life young people. You know, young people. There's me, you got Zendaya, you got Chloe Kim, you got those twinks from BTS. We're all birds of a feather. We're all young. We should all hang out sometime and talk about what it's like to be young. The point is, the demo number is important, and the demo number brings Gutfeld back to Earth, because he's on Fox, and their viewers are ancient. At any rate... The demo, which is measured, ugh, annoying, it's measured as a percentage, so I can't quite give you apples to apples numbers. Just know that a bigger number is better, okay? Gutfeld gets a 0.16 share in the demo, and then the order's a little different. Full frontal, uh, they're just below 0.14. Last week tonight, just below 0.12. The daily show's right at 0.1. Real time, just below 0.1. God's Honest Truth, remember that show? At 0.06. Daisus and Mero, 0.02. The point is, Gutfeld's still leading, but not by a ton. And I should also mention that there's a lot of noise in the data here. These numbers aren't really apples to apples. you got to consider things like, how's the network doing? How's the lead-in doing? What about DVR views? What about streaming? What about YouTube? All that stuff does make a difference. Hard numbers are really only part of the story. But the story is at least definitely that Gutfeld has a solid foothold. And... There's one big difference that really needs to be discussed. In terms of quantity of output, Gutfeld is Danielle Steele to everyone else's J.D. Salinger. In the past six months, Gutfeld has churned out, some would say shat out, an incredible 127 hour-long episodes. Those are Dickensian workhouse hours, and that's barely even a metaphor. Gutfeld... <laughs> Even though they're on Fox, worked right through Christmas week. We're on Christmas. They worked right through Christmas week, Bob Cratchit style, while almost every show took all of December off. Gutfeld just films way more than any other show. In the same six-month period I've been talking about, Full Frontal with Sam B produced 11 episodes with 22 minutes of content each. Again, Gutfeld did 127 at 44 minutes of content each. Jesus and Merrill was on four times. In terms of minutes broadcast, so we're not counting commercials here, the numbers look like this. Here are the minutes they broadcast in the past six months. Gutfeld is at about 5,500 minutes. Second place, The Daily Show, is at about 1,800. Real Time with Bill Maher, down below 1,000. Last Week Tonight is at about 400. The God's Honest Truth, also about 400. Full Frontal with Sam B, 240-something. And Jesus and Mero, 
The bar is so thin, I don't even know what that is. I believe that is 120. And that is truly an absurd gap. And that gap, I think it's it's relevant to the discussion if we are less interested in the how successful is Gutfeld as a TV show question and more interested in the how much of a cultural impact do these shows have question. I think that matters. How much are people watching these shows? To try to assess how much real estate these shows occupy in the collective American headspace. I made up a number. I made up a number I call minutes people have spent watching each show. I didn't spend a lot of time coming up with the title. But minutes people have spent watching each show, which is total minutes aired times average viewers. And remember, it doesn't include DVR, unfortunately, because I don't have that data, which does skew young. Nonetheless, minutes spent watching each show. Here's the result. <laughs> People have watched Gutfeld for about 10 billion minutes over the last six months, and the other six shows on cable combined do not get up to 2 billion minutes. It is roughly accurate to say people have spent five times as much time watching Gutfeld in the past six months as they have the other six political comedy shows on cable combined. And I feel like I'm doing an ad for Gutfeld at this point. I'm not. I'm just trying to point out that this is a thing. Gutfeld has become a thing in the world of late night. Now, another qualifier here. A lot of what's going on is that Gutfeld is retaining Fox News' already large audience. But they are retaining it. Remember, Fox tried this 15 years ago with the half-hour news hour, and it failed. What's working this time? Well, I watched the show. I made myself do it. I didn't particularly enjoy it, but I watched the show. And the trick seems to be that Gutfeld is only sort of comedy. And here's what it is. A typical episode of Gutfeld contains about six to eight minutes of scripted comedy. That is 30 to 40 minutes a week, well short of the roughly 60 minutes a week that they used to produce during the Jon Stewart era daily show. Now, I had planned to not comment on the quality of the comedy. There is an unwritten rule in comedy that you don't go after other comedians for being unfunny. I think this is a good rule because comedy is subjective. So if we all started slamming each other for not being funny, then comedy would just turn into a big cat fight fueled by professional jealousy. And it already is sort of that. But here's the thing. Greg Gutfeld shits on other comedians all the time on the show. He did basically an entire segment calling Colbert unfunny. So if he's not going to adhere to the rule, then I'm not going to adhere to the rule. And what I have to say is that I have been to children's funerals that are funnier than Gutfeld. Gutfeld's scripted bits typically use the clip joke format that Jon Stewart pioneered more than 20 years ago at this point. Gutfeld's use of the form is neither innovative nor particularly good. In my opinion, he is overly reliant on simile jokes. That's like jokes, we call them sometimes. You may have noticed that comedy shows are kind of addicted to these. You have to use them sometimes, but boy, they get used a lot. Gutfeld uses them a ton. He also uses puns. The one belief I hold that I might literally be willing to go to war and die over is that puns are not funny. 
Puns are humor the way chocolate milk is jet fuel. Comedians who use puns should be subject to torture unless we can think of something worse. So those are the little lead-in segments, the lead-ins to the panels, basically. Gutfeld also has these brief cutaway sketches featuring what I assume are the writers, and that really is too bad because the acting weighs down the sometimes kind of okay writing. Probably my second most firmly held belief is that writers should never act (laughs) and actors should never write. When actors write, you get movies like The Brave and House of D. This is the second House of D mentioned on the podcast. That's a great hate watch, by the way. House of D. Put it on your hate watch list. Robin Williams playing a mentally disabled person. That's what happens when actors write. And when writers act, (laughs) then you get all the incessant, crippling self-awareness and introspection that made us writers to begin with seeping through our pores and making the audience uncomfortable. If there was a bar exam to become a TV or movie producer, it should consist of one question, and that question should be, should you ever let an actor write or a writer act? And the answer is fucking no! (sighs) Back to Gutfeld. The one point (laughs) I will make in Gutfeld's defense is that, as addressed on this newsletter before in a post called The Only Five Things I Liked in 2021, I no longer like anything. That's just kind of where I'm at right now. I spent too many years in comedy nom and I cracked up and now the only thing I find funny is moonwalking cats. And yes, If you go to the written version of this article, you will find a video of a moonwalking cat. I would not deprive you of that video. This is a Chekhov's moonwalking cat situation. If you mention a moonwalking cat, you must show a moonwalking cat. I promise there is a moonwalking cat there. At any rate, that's where I'm at mentally. So just consider that when I say that Gutfeld isn't funny, and I am saying it's not funny... Please remember, my soul threw itself in front of a train during about year three of the Trump presidency, and I now respond to comedy about the way a tree responds to Beethoven. So, grain of salt there. But comedy aside, Gutfeld has made one big innovation. They have solved the political comedy panel problem. That is key, because panels make up about 85% of the show. They make the show's prodigious rate of production possible. Now, personally, I've never really enjoyed panels very much. The panels on Bill Maher's old Politically Incorrect show (laughs) always featured this unholy mix of brain-dead celebrities and unfunny think tank types. So you'd have exchanges like, that's an interesting point about NATO mission creep in the post-Soviet era, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, bass player from Hoobastank, retort, Of course, the panels on Mars' current show, they're basically interviews. They usually have two people. They're not the five-person panels from the old days. The nightly show with Larry Wilmore, remember that show? It was on about five years ago. They tried to bring back the five-person panels, and they didn't really work. The show's not on the air anymore. It's weird that it never worked in the U.S., because panel shows are a thing. They are huge in the U.K., but other than Bill Maher sometimes, they really haven't been a part of of the American political comedy landscape. Gutfeld has panels every night, and they basically work for two reasons. The first, 
is that they found the right people. Instead of mixing together lightweight comics and bland as plain white toast intellectuals, the way Will Moore and Marr sometimes did, everyone on Gutfeld is basically in the politics as entertainment business. Some of them are comedians who know politics, others are pundits who have a working knowledge of humor, but all have the basic job description of person who is professionally on TV. Also, they don't rotate the panelists very much. That is how they do it in Britain. If you watch five episodes of the British show 8 Out of 10 Cats, then you have seen pretty much everyone who appears on 8 Out of 10 Cats. This, I think, is a good idea. It allows a reporter to develop, the panelists know each other, and the audience knows them too. So the first reason the panels work is the personnel. The second reason they work is that the content on the show is light and conducive to comedy. Gutfeld is not trying to inform his viewers or talk about the world in any substantial way. Each segment is just a big, scattered pile of Republican talking points. A topic's political valence is far more important than its actual world importance. Culture war items are on the show all the time. The panel will talk about some lefty, nobody's stupid tweet for 12 minutes, and Personally, though, I think this is bad for America. I mean, shouldn't the situation in Ukraine get a little more attention than a press release about M&Ms? It might be bad for America, but it does make for good TV. Gutfeld's barely structured discussions. They're breezy. They're ripe for comedy. They work. It's basically a sports talk show where everyone is rooting for the same team. And of course, in that type of environment, intellectual dishonesty is going to flourish. And of course it does on Gutfeld, which I will remind you is on Fox News. Themes on the show. It is always taken as a given on the show that Biden is hopelessly senile. Well, well past it. That contention is never challenged on the show that I saw. They also believe that the media relentlessly back Biden. Did they see any of the coverage on Afghanistan? These things go unquestioned. Gutfeld himself, he's not anti-vaccine. He has been vaccinated, but he frequently criticizes those who criticize the unvaccinated. It's kind of an anti-anti-anti-vax thing. He did a segment on the removal of a statue of Teddy Roosevelt and conspicuously omitted the fact that the black and Native American figures next to Roosevelt in the statue were really more of the issue than TR himself. He just didn't mention that. In a piece about Biden's recent press conference, Gutfeld, <laughs> this was weird, played a supercut of reporters' questions about Russia and then unironically asked, why are reporters so obsessed with Russia? He was trying to tie it to the Rachel Maddow obsession with all things Russia. But in this context, I don't know, Greg, maybe the 100,000 Russian troops on the Ukrainian border have something to do with their questions? At the end of the day, Gutfeld definitely didn't do anything to dispel my belief that the Republican Party, it's basically intellectually brain dead. Of course, Gutfeld himself, he's not technically a Republican. His Wikipedia page says he's a registered libertarian. He's been cagey about this. He's, I think he's a libertarian and doesn't want to say that on Fox News. A lot of his guests are libertarian. Those people are more open about it. The label that he attaches to his political views is ultimately, I think, not extremely important. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Fox News is a Republican network 
and Gutfeld is carrying exactly the water the Republican Party would want him to carry. He is absolutely teeing up the crime and the Democrats only care about wokeness talking points that Republicans are 100% going to run on in November. He hates Biden. He's friendly to Trump. And he thinks that Ron DeSantis walks on water. DeSantis is definitely running for president. I don't doubt that Greg Gutfeld considers himself intellectually a libertarian, but I also think it's clear that his form of libertarianism fits comfortably within today's Republican Party. So, does Gutfeld's success tell us anything about the state of TV political comedy? Yeah, I think that it does. I think it confirms that the comedy to politics ratio that people expect, that's shifted. The half-hour news hour, which aired in 2007, this is Fox News's first attempt to do this, like the Daily Show of its era, that show was about 70% comedy, 30% politics. Gutfeld roughly inverts that ratio. It's about 70% politics, 30% comedy. The jokes and the lighthearted vibe definitely give the show a different flavor, than the six hours of opinion TV that come before it on Fox News, but I would say it is absolutely of the same genus. Second question, does Gutfeld tell us anything about the state of American politics? Yeah, I think it does. I think it provides evidence for two trends that were already pretty clear. The first is that libertarianism or libertarian-ish stuff has displaced religious conservatism as the primary strand of conservatism in the Republican Party. By the way, I got an email from a reader after this column. She argued that populist conservatism is actually the dominant strand of the Republican Party. She might be right. The point is, it's not the old religious conservatism anymore. We definitely agree on that. Something in the more libertarian populist kind of area, that is now the dominant viewpoint in the Republican Party. Mike Pence is a dying breed. The second thing I think Gutfeld provides evidence for is that the left has become culturally dominant. If you think back to the Daily Show of the George W. Bush era, which was when I fell in love with the Daily Show, that worked largely because Jon Stewart got to be the cheeky upstart giving the finger to the stuffy old guard. This, as I've written before in my The Left is Turning Comedy into Christian Rock article, this is the natural state of comedy. This is the footloose dynamic. You want to be Kevin Bacon, not John Lithgow. But today, the system, which might include the president, might include corporations, or at least their PR departments, <laughs> and most of the media, and I'm very much including you know, Hollywood, all of entertainment in the media, not just news media, that all tilts to the left. And that puts left-leaning comedians in a strange spot. We are the system now. It's weird. Also, a lot of the zealotry that used to characterize the right and made for great comedy fodder, a lot of that has migrated to the left. That's why I use the phrase, the religious left. They remind me very much of the religious right. In today's environment, a right-leaning comedian is now able to claim the mantle, and we can debate whether they deserve it, but they can claim the mantle of rebellious truth-teller pushing back against the man. And that is basically what Greg Gutfeld, who is, by the way, a punk rock fan who supports legalized drugs, that is basically what he's doing. And, by the way, if you're curious about 
Colbert and Fallon and Seth Meyers. I didn't talk about the network shows in this piece because I feel that they're just different animals, different reach, different focus, different time slots. But it's worth noting, there are nights when Gutfeld gets more viewers than any of them. Colbert's typically number one, but Gutfeld occasionally beats Colbert. Mediate just named Gutfeld the 12th most influential person in news. Gutfeld is here to stay. The show's numbers are steady, and its formula can be repeated. That is really interesting to me. The conservative version of The Daily Show, after 20 years, has arrived. And ultimately, I don't think the explanation that I used to give for why there wasn't a conservative daily show, my explanation about there aren't many conservative comics and the conservative view just isn't consistent with being subversive, I don't think that explanation was totally wrong. I think I just failed to recognize that what's considered subversive changes over time. And apparently, the time for a conservative political comedy show, after several decades, the time for that show has arrived. And that's the episode. I hope people found that interesting. I try not to write too much about my niche interests. If I did, the podcast slash substack would be all comedy, soccer, and Coen Brothers movies. But I think there's a trend here worth talking about. By the way, I have heard rumblings that The Daily Show is apparently maybe getting less woke. I don't know. I haven't checked it out. I know they went through a major format change a couple months ago. That's actually why their minutes produced number isn't higher. They were doing this huge format change. I've seen it once since the format change. Um, I don't know. Maybe they'll go that direction. Anyway, thank you for listening. One last time, all of my stuff can be found at imightberwrong.substack.com. If you are going there to find the podcast episode that has There's Life in the Old Girl Yet by Maisie Gay and you are in Japan, I have terrible news for you. It's not going to be there. But all the other stuff is there. Thank you for reading, listening, and thank you for sharing the stuff, by the way. I've had a couple things go kind of viral recently. I did this fake review of Joel Cohen's most recent movie by Ethan Cohen, and that's gone mini viral. And I really appreciate people who share that. That gets me subscribers and ultimately one day money so i appreciate when people do that that is all for this week's episode i will be back next week with another episode until then thank you very much for listening and bye for now